We are in Luke chapter 2, and for those of you who are guests with us, uh, the reason we're in Luke chapter 2 is because we are going through the book of Luke, and so we do that here at uh, this church where we take books of the Bible and kind of let uh, those books dictate to us what we encounter, and so today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, and we're going to go all the way to verse uh, 52. So, a lot to ground to cover, um, but what I want to do is I want to read one verse, Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Luke chapter 2, verse 25, and uh, then I'll pray for us and we can dive in uh, to God's Word together. <clears throat> so Luke chapter 2, verse 25, <clears throat> excuse me, the Word of God reads, as follows. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we ask that in this moment, your Holy Spirit would be upon us. That there would be a, an acute sense of our need for you. And we would be, become more and more aware that you satisfy every longing. <clears throat> and so, Lord, we ask that in this moment you would transform us and change us. We ask that you would be our peace and our instructor. And we ask that we would be humble to receive. Receive from your word and receive in this moment what you have for us to be more like you. So please, Father, I pray, protect us from just making this mental. Protect us from just making this a list of things to do. But would you please, by the mercy of of your Son, would you please help us to relate to you and draw near to you and experience your presence together. We ask this in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. Let me ask some questions. Have you ever been driving through a neighborhood and you begin to look upon certain homes and you begin to realize some of those homes have things that your home doesn't have. Have you ever been down that road? And you look and you're like, oh, I didn't know that was possible. Oh, that looks good. And the longing begins to rise. Have you ever done that with relationships? Have you ever looked at a job that somebody has and you are like, huh, that and its income and its benefits... That, that would be a good thing to have. I, I, I like that. Or let's say a, a marital relationship. Maybe you're in a season where your relationship is struggling and you look at someone who appears to be at peace and you're like, that. Or you see that someone doesn't have quite the deficiency that someone you're relating to does and you're like, oh, I wish they would be like this. Do you have longings like that? Well, I think honestly those are just the tip of the iceberg. Because we are longing factories. We have cravings 
that are all over the heart. Here's just a few. We long for things. Things like home or a car or certain technology or a job or a career or a certain image. I want to be healthy and look a certain way. We long to fit in. What about relationships with people? We long their physical connection or a physical touch. We long for friendships. We long, maybe you long for to have a child. Maybe you're single and you long to have a spouse. Maybe as you relate to people or as just you live in recreation, you long to win. You long for your sports team to win. You long to win the argument. You long to win. What about direction? You just long to have the path made clear. To know where you're going. Not just for the next five minutes, but like you know where you're headed. Some of you who are students, you long for spring break already, even though we just finished winter break. You long that you wouldn't have tests anymore. You long to graduate. Those who are hard workers, they long for vacation. What about emotionally or mentally? We long for emotional strength. We long for wisdom. We long for relief from physical pain. Some of us long for there to be healing from diseases. Some who are parents long for obedient children. Some who have animals long for obedient animals. Sometimes your kids are animals and you just long for everybody to obey. Sometimes... You just wish that your spouse would act the way that they need to. Friends, this is just a small sampling of our longings, our desires, and our cravings and our longings are as varied as we are unique. We're all unique and we all have different longings and different capacities. And yes, there's some overlap, but we are longing factories. But I want to put forward to you that this massive list, these are not bad longings. It's not wrong to desire. Matter of fact, desire, ambition, longing is what drives many of us. It's not wrong to desire and to desire intensely. It's what makes leaders great. It's what gets the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's what keeps parents going when they want to give up. It's what keeps students pushing through a degree program that's Hard. Desire is not bad. It's a gift from God. However, desire unfulfilled can be an opportunity for all kinds of struggles. You get tired of enduring. You get tired of waiting, so what do you do? You short-circuit the program and you try to satisfy your longing and your desire another way. Some of us we get really depressed when our longings are not met. I'll never have my longings fulfilled, the one who is really down might think. Or we might be filled with worry. My, my longings will be left unmet, and that's bad for me, so I'm afraid of what's to come. Some of our unmet desires and unmet longings result in anger. You just get frustrated that it's not happening at your pace or in that certain way. And so you get frustrated with those in your home and you try to work harder and grip harder and you try to make it happen because it's not happening quick enough. 
unfulfilled desires, hear this, can crush you or drive you. The question is, what are we going to do with them? What are we going to do with them? Today, as we look at this passage in Luke 2, it's the only extended passage of Jesus' life from his birth until when his ministry begins at age 30. And as we see this passage, the message is drilled home. What you, what you do with your longing can be the difference between life and death, contentment and jealousy, or peace and fear. What you do with your longing is the difference between life and death, contentment and jealousy, and peace and fear. So what is put forth for us are example after example of those who have fought hard to cultivate a healthy way to deal with their longings and to channel those longings for the glory of God. So, four things that we see in this passage. What does Luke 2 teach us about how to have healthy longings and healthy desires? Number one, longing waits. Verse 22 through 25 shows us that longing waits. Number two, longing worships. That's verses 36 through 38. Number three, longing obeys. That's verses 39 through 42. And a healthy longing, number four, draws near to God. Verses 43 through 52. So let's dive in here. At the beginning of our uh, passage in chapter 2, verse 22 as we look at this first idea that longing waits, verses 22 through 35. And it says, and when the time came for their purification. Now, let's back up the bus a little bit. We've all slept since the last sermon we've had on, chapter, on Luke. And so, who is the there in, in this sentence? It is Mary and Joseph, who have just given birth to their firstborn son, Jesus. And Let's make it really clear on the outset that Luke's intent for verses 22 through 52 is to highlight that this one who is born, Jesus the Christ, is who he says he is. Verses 22 through 52 of chapter 2 are just confirmation that Jesus is who he says he is. Let's make sure that we see it. Number one, Jesus is the Savior. Luke 2.11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, finish it with me, a, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. When Jesus was announced onto the scene to the shepherds, He was called a Savior. A Savior for all mankind, any who would submit to Him. And now, Jesus has come, and you'll see in this passage, as a confirmation that He is the coming Savior. Number two is that He is coming, and His coming shows that He truly is the Son of God. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, shows us that this is the way we are supposed to look at Him. It says in verse 35 of chapter 1 of Luke, And the angel answered Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. This child was born to a virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
God, as C.S. Lewis says, God begets God. Jesus Christ is God Himself. But Jesus Christ is God Himself in the flesh. He is fully human. And that's the other thing that Luke wants to highlight in this section is that Jesus is fully man. And here's where we see it. Look at chapter 2, back to our chapter that we're studying. Look at verse 40. Verse 40 says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Jesus was a child who had to grow and grow in wisdom. It says, the author of Hebrews says that he learned from what he suffered. He had to acquire knowledge. There was this sense that he was growing in stature, in his physical nature, but he was growing in his mind as well. He was fully man. That's why you read in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He was fully God, fully man. He did not lose his godness, but he emptied himself of the right to access his godness, putting on human flesh that he might be able to identify with us at every part of the journey, from the womb to the tomb. He can identify with us. So, that gets us kind of understanding this whole chapter in in the outset. But now what we are doing is we are looking at how certain individuals saw the coming of this Messiah and what was their response. And let's look here at verse 22. And so when the time came for there, that's Mary and Joseph, uh, for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, let's stop there. What is this, verse 22, their purification? Now, in Leviticus chapter 12, the law of Moses is laid out for us. And we are on the cusp of something revolutionary, life-altering, world-changing, and that is the coming of Jesus. And when He comes, He does away with the laws that were specifically given to Israel, and He institutes the law of Christ. But he's just now coming. And so those who were following God were to follow the laws of Israel until the Messiah came. And so what we see is that Mary and Joseph were obedient. They were obedient to the laws laid forth. And here's what's laid forth in Leviticus 12. Anyone who's seen a child being born knows that it is a bloody situation. Well, in Leviticus chapter 12... They basically say that after eight days, the child will be circumcised, but that the mom and the child cannot go up to the temple until after 33 days post-circumcision to enter in the temple in order for time of cleansing, a time of cleansing. So ultimately, the way the Hebrews counted 33 plus 8 gives you an inclusive counting of 40 days. So 40 days moving forward is what they had to wait in order to go to the temple. Now the time for purification has come, and they were to go up to the temple to do what? Well, it says here in verse 24, that in order that every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, 
And then there's a quote, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. They were to offer a sacrifice as a memorial to God that says we will remember God as we raise this child and as a, as a declaration that he is the only one who can solve sin. And so there was a sacrifice done because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, here's the catcher. In Leviticus chapter 12, they were supposed to bring a lamb and a turtle dove. That was the sacrifice that was required, unless you were poor. If you didn't have the financial resources, you would bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons in order to satisfy the requirement. And so what we see as we look at Mary and Joseph's life is that they fit, they fit the poor category, the low-income category. But isn't that interesting? They weren't told, because you don't have the resources, you should just hold it until you do. No, they were called to be faithful and to be generous with what they had in obedience to God, no matter whether they were rich or whether they were poor. They were to be faithful to give and to give this sacrifice, not using their poverty as an excuse, but as an opportunity to give in a sacrificial way. So, they did it. And now as they go to the temple, we run into the temple and we see that somebody else is going to the temple at the same time. And who is this? Look at verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous. That means he did what was right in the sight of God. It's the same word that's used for Zechariah and Elizabeth earlier in chapter 1. And he was also devout. Devout was one who set his or her eye and mind upon God, and they were going hard after God. It was devoted to the ways of God. doesn't mean perfection. Neither term does. It does mean a trajectory of life towards God. So he was righteous, and he was devout or devoted. And now what we begin to see is he was also characterized by something else. And this is where I get the title for the whole sermon, and that is longing or this idea of waiting, because Simeon was characterized as one who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. This consolation word is the same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit in other places. The word is paraclete, the one who comes alongside and invades life in order to represent the presence and the comfort and counsel of God. He was waiting for God to come among them. That's what he was waiting on. That was the consolation, the comfort of Israel, is that God one day would dwell among them. And that was what he was longing for. Now, his longing is not different than our longing. And what we begin to see is not only with the word waiting for, the phrase waiting for consolation, but also later on when he begins to burst into songs of praise in verses 29 through 32, he is echoing a verse that tells us what he's waiting for, and that's Isaiah 25. So Isaiah 25 verses 8 and 9, listen to what he's waiting for. Listen to what we're waiting for. Isaiah 25, 8 through 9 says this, when God comes among us and dwells with us, this is what he's going to do. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. 
and the reproach that is the suffering and the, the enemies working against God's people, he'll take that away from all the earth because the Lord has spoken and what he speaks he will do. It'll be said on that day, verse 9, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The picture is of people who have waited for God to come among them and to swallow up death. And the promise is they will not regret waiting. They'll not regret it. The promises are full. And it affects how you live your life. On January the 8th, 1956, is something that is 50 years ago. And Christians this past January the 8th celebrated this kind of 50-year memorial. And celebrated is the right term, but it is the memorial of this. When Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming and Roger Udarian were speared to death on a sandbar called Palm Beach in the Carare River of Ecuador. And they were trying to reach the Horani Indians for the first time in history with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was in that moment when they encountered those Indian individuals in Ecuador, that they sought to befriend them and proclaim Jesus when they were perceived as a threat and they were killed. The headlines throughout that time in the Christian community was of the tragedy of the event. And make no mistake about it, death is tragic. It made Jesus weep when his best friend, Lazarus, or one of his dear friends was died. Death is a tragic thing. But one of the individuals who were killed, Jim Elliott, his wife Elizabeth Elliott, wrote a book called In the Shadow of the Almighty, and she wrote it about this story of this, these events that unfolded on, in Ecuador because she felt like the broader Christian community was missing something about this event. What were they missing? She writes this, the world did not recognize the truth of the second clause in my husband Jim Elliott's life creed. And here's his creed. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep, his life, his possessions, everything that's on this earth, He's no fool to give that up to gain what he cannot lose. And that is a forever face-to-face -face relationship with the living God. He was no fool. How could he go? Because he too, like Simeon, had been waiting for the consolation of God's people. He was convinced that Isaiah 25, 8 and 9 is true, that when the Lord comes and He came and He died a death that we didn't deserve and He rose from the dead to say, death has been swallowed up and one day He will come again just as sure as He came the first time and He will come again and He will swallow up death forever and finally. 
And that means we need not fear. We need not be afraid because our God has secured his promises. He has swallowed up death. As Isaiah says, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach that you are feeling, the the enemies against you, the suffering that you are experiencing, will be taken away from all the earth. This is what the Lord says. And so as we look at Simeon, we realize that what he did with his longing is what Jim Elliot did with his longing. He waited. He waited for those promises to come. He waited confident in the promises of God. He waited patiently. That's why as I was studying this to preach it last week before the snow came, I began to meditate on what waiting looked like. And that's why I took some time to just give a, a message on patience because Throughout the scriptures, whenever you see waiting, you see the word patient attached to it to describe how we wait. But patience is not inactivity. Patience is not the twiddling of the thumbs. Patience is trusting God's promises and acting upon those and waiting for him to bring all of his promises to bear. Now what's interesting here is that look at verse 26 of our our passage. And it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Once he saw Jesus, death was on the horizon, but that he would not die until he saw Jesus. And, verse 27, and he came in the Holy Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, the parents aren't the point, Jesus is the point, he's the one that gets the name there, right? To do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, and he began to sing. He began to sing. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, the salvation of Isaiah 25, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, including the Indians of Ecuador, and for the glory to your people, Israel. Do you hear this? Now I can depart in peace. How did he handle the fact that he was going to die soon? He handled it with singing. That's what waiting does. Waiting has a confidence that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And Simeon was filled with confidence. And some of us, we, oh, it's easy for him. Jesus showed up on the scene. Really? Process it. Look at verse 28. And he took him up in his arms and blessed God. He's holding his Savior in his arms and saying, you are my Lord and I owe everything to you. That takes faith. You could have said, no, I'm bigger than you. You're just a little baby. I'm smarter than you. You're just a little kid. No, he knew who he was holding. I would argue it took as much faith for him to wait for the promises as it does for us. And so we don't write it off as that was good for Simeon, good for him. We say it's possible for us to wait. And with our longing, we wait for him. And how we wait is crucial. 
Because look at verses 33 through 35. And his father and his mother marveled at what Simeon had just said about their son. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The summary of this promise made by Simeon is this. One commentator says this, that Jesus forces choices. Jesus forces choices. There is no riding in the middle. When Jesus shows up on the scene, you are all his or you are against him. There will be the fall of those who are against him and there will be the rising of those who are for him. And we have already been told in Luke chapter 1, what categorizes these two groups of people. Luke chapter 1 says this. He has shown, Luke chapter 1 verse 50 through 52. He has shown strength with his arm, speaking of God, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has broken down the mighty from their thrones, and yet he has exalted those of humble estate. Who will fall? The proud. And those who are mighty in their own eyes. Who will be exalted and who will rise? The humble. So which side are you on? Which side am I on? When he speaks of arrogance, he doesn't only speak of those who are so insecure that they have to boast about how good they are at everything. It genuinely is insecurity. When you have to talk about how good you are at everything, you're insecure because sadly, and this is not a judgment, sadly, you have attached your value to what you can do and how much better you might be to somebody else. That's arrogance. But arrogance is also something much more than just that. It's those who fume at God as if they are wiser than Him. Or those who think they know what love is, and when they experience pain, they say, that's not love, God, even though God tells them that he only does what is good to his children, and he always loves them. It's those who arrogantly feel like they can put God on trial as if they were powerful enough to be his judge. Those are temptations for arrogance. And friends, they're temptations for believers and unbelievers alike. And so for all of us in the room, Jesus is holding this up. And this announcement of who Jesus is, it is a call that we would run away from arrogance. And we would run towards humility to attach all of our identity in who we trust in, not what we can do. Not how we compare to someone else, but how Jesus compares to the rest of humanity and say, He is enough to define my value and my worth and my significance. But friends, sometimes you know what it's like to not want to wait for your longings to be fulfilled by the Lord. And you try to short-circuit the plan and you try to meet all of your needs quickly in your own strength. It reminds me of a cartoon that I loved to watch growing up, Bugs Bunny. Okay, Looney Tunes, Bugs Bunny. If you've ever seen it, a lot of fun. Now, 
Bugs Bunny, in this one episode, I tried to find it on YouTube, but I couldn't find it. It wasn't successful. So Bugs Bunny is going through the desert. And as he goes through the desert, he begins to be really parched, so thirsty. And then out in the distance, he sees it. The palm tree, the pool of water with grass growing. And he sprints towards it. And he runs and he dives in and he goes, like does a really good dive. And he dives in and he takes all of that water and starts shoving it in only for the sand to start going down. Because what he thought was water was a mirage. It's just sand out there. And so he was scarfing down all the sand and then all of a sudden he starts yakking it everywhere. This is a picture of sometimes what we do with our longings. We're not content to wait for God to satisfy certain longings, for God to guide us and direct us. And so we short-circuit His plan of making us more like Him. And we feel, fill our cravings with too much of a good thing. We numb ourselves with food or with gadgets, with overspending our budget. We numb ourselves with relationships we make certain people in our lives saviors only for them to feel burdened and you to feel let down. And what is it? It's like scarfing down sand. It appeared as if it was going to do it. And instead, it makes you sick. And what does it do? It leaves you thirsting for more. Friends, may we not choose the path of arrogance of trying to satisfy ourselves with half pleasures. As C.S. Lewis says, we, we try to find our satisfaction by making mud pies in the slums when we've been invited to a vacation at the sea. Why would we settle? Instead, he promises that the humble will be exalted. And the humility say, Christ has done it for me, and that's my value. Verses 36 through 38 now begin to show us that longing not only waits, but longing worships. Look at verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So that's speaking to her faithfulness to God's command to remain a virgin until married. And then she married her husband. Seven years later, he dies. And then as a widow until she was 84. Now the wording here is ambiguous. It means she did that for 77 more years until she was actually 84. Or it could mean that she was a widow for 84 years. We don't know. What we do know is how she responded to being a widow. To losing her husband. Verse 37. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were, here's our, our, our word again, waiting for the redemption of Israel. Anna did what with her longing? She worshipped. And what is worship? Well, it's described for us. Worship is, in its base form, it is to find satisfaction in something. Ultimate satisfaction in something, you're worshiping that. But specifically here, it's what you do with your life in order to cultivate a heart of worship. So she is, 
spending time in prayer and in fasting, going hard after God. She's filling her mind with things to be thankful for, and she's speaking with thanksgiving, and she's sharing with those around her about how God will fulfill the promises that he has promised to give. This is what worship is. It is enjoying the presence of God and pleading for him to come and to move in your heart. It is a being filled with thanksgiving. What short circuits our worship? Well, yesterday morning, um, my wife had a wonderful plan to um, make some cinnamon rolls. So we, uh, she bought some cinnamon rolls, and it was the canned version. Sometimes those are the best. Um, it was the canned version, but you could tell right when you pop the can, which sometimes gives me a heart attack, but right when you pop the can... They didn't look so good. And so we tried to cook them anyway, but it didn't go so well. So what do you do when the cinnamon rolls fail? Road trip. So we took a trip to Krispy Kreme because every epic fail for breakfast must include Krispy Kreme redemption. So that's what we did. We all got in the car and we headed to Krispy Kreme for some breakfast. Now, um, Yes, we did pay for the sugar high that they experienced later, but that's a different story. And so we all sat down at Krispy Kreme and we were eating. Well, the family that was right in front of us, uh, they had gotten donuts as well. And all of a sudden, I hear in the background this child. And this child is wailing at the top of its lungs. And I was like, this is such a picture of us. Because, you know, probably this kid was upset because they wanted donuts and it was delivered at the table. But it wasn't five minutes later that all of a sudden this child's life was in turmoil over something completely separate. And isn't that us? We can get something that satisfies our longings only to think about what we don't have and be filled not with thanksgiving but by focusing on what we feel like is a deficiency, we begin to complain, struggle, yell and scream. Anna had every opportunity to do that. She lost her husband. Anyone who has experienced loss can take great comfort that there is another way than just letting that certain loss define you and cripple you for all of your life. It is right to grieve. It is right to cry. It is natural and right to feel a sense of loss. But may we not be consumed by what we don't have. Instead, may we intentionally set our eyes on what we do. Anna chose. I don't believe it's a throwaway that we were told Anna's background. We didn't need to know that she was a widow. All we needed to know that she was a worshiper, and that would have been encouraging. But she was a worshiping widow, and that matters. And we too, no matter our circumstances, with our longing for things to be different, you know she longed for things to be different. We worship. We're filled with thanksgiving. We go hard after God, and we focus on what we have in Him rather than what we do not. The other thing that we see in Anna's life is this. Look at verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, last week, 
<clears throat> because of the ice, um, I sought to try to just give us some uh, a word from the word, and it was just amazing to see uh, kind of how many people kind of checked into it, and it was this wonderful sense of our people are still kind of getting a common message and are engaging with God even on an icy day, and that was just really encouraging to my heart. However, that alone is not church. Why? Why does it say that at the end of this book, in Luke 24, that the disciples, after Jesus ascended, they continued to gather in the temple together, praising God and giving thanks? Why is that? Because we were not created just to take in good information and have a good life lesson for us. We were created to have a relationship with the living God and for that relationship to be shared with one another. The church is a community. It's a body. And here, they needed Anna to speak of all the things that were encouraging her. And friends, I need you to speak to me so that I don't get distracted in worshiping. And friends, I get distracted all the time. But when I hear of your good example, when I hear of a verse that encouraged you, when you say you pray for me through a text, it's what the church is meant to do. It is not sufficient for you to sit at home in your couch and listen to a mediocre or a wonderful sermon. That's not the Christian walk. The Christian walk is to go after God as an individual and then to come ready to absorb and to give away. We need one another. And that's what we see worshiping Anna was doing with her waiting. She worshiped with others. We also see that longing obeys. Look at verse 39 through 42. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. I'll read it again. Longing obeys. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon them. They did everything that the Lord required. Why did they put that there? Because... Although they didn't know exactly what was going to happen and when all these things that were said about Jesus would happen, their longing knew to obey. They were to do what God had asked them to do. And God has given us a lot to do. And it's an invitation into a relationship of joy and peace. Obedience is beautiful. It's good for you. It's good for you to learn to follow God and to say, I trust that what you're saying is best. Even sometimes going against your own understanding. It's good for us to obey. Because obedience not only is good for us, it also is good for others. Obedience is good. I was asking God to try to help me with a, a way to illustrate that. And he gave me one this morning with my little boy. Justice. My little boy Justice was the first little one up, came downstairs, and as I looked at him, I could tell he had dressed himself. It was just daddy's intuition, probably. <laughs> as I looked at him, he was excited to go to church. Daddy, I'm all ready to go. And I was like, son, that's great. That's great. You know, um, mommy and daddy will probably have to change a few of your clothes 
but um, I'm so glad that we're going to get to go to church together today. And his response in that moment was like many teenagers. Oh, he's five. Oh. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. What was that for? I said, son, you just took something that was really small and you made it really big. Why did you do that? Daddy, I, don't I just wanted to wear these clothes. And I was like, son, son, you can trust me. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And he was like, ah, oh, like that. And I was like, no, 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 we don't do that in this house. Friends, let me tell you, parents of young kids, complaining kids become complaining adults. Don't let it go. Don't let it go. Entitled kids become entitled adults. We must be careful not to just overlook when our children want to rule their own lives. The Bible tells us what happens when you let them do that. You train up a child to rule their own life, and when they're old, they won't depart from their own life. That's what the verse means. But how you do it matters too. Because angry parents produce angry children. And God gave me grace. He gave me grace this morning. And I said, son, that's not going to make your heart happy to get what you want all the time. A little bit later, we're going to go upstairs. We're going to put the clothes on that you need. And you're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I was like, okay, daddy. Okay. And I hugged him. and you know, He still wasn't very happy about it, but he was ready to follow. And that was a gift. And friends, I want to tell you, sometimes you're not going to be very happy to do what you know God is calling you to do. But I'm encouraging you that it is good for you. My God tells me so. And I've got to trust that he's wiser than I am. And so we obey. Just like Mary and Joseph obeyed, they obeyed while they were waiting. We too, with our longing, longing obeys. Because longing also when we obey, it's not just blessing ourselves, it's blessing our neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the path of humility. And so we need to think about how we can, for the sake of love, obey. Because here's one of my favorite verses. Hear this. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he what? Will give you the desires of your heart. Do you hear that? Delight yourself in the Lord. Go after God. Ask Him to fulfill all of your desires. And He will satisfy every longing. Not one longing will be left unsatisfied. What a massive promise. You will never follow God with your whole heart and be left without your needs being met and your desires being fulfilled. How is that? Because your desires begin to align to what His desires are. And you'll be able to see that some of your desires before, they were going to mess you up. And you're able to see clearer that by pursuing Him, He's going to change you. And so you can say, and He can say, Every one of your desires in total will be fulfilled. Delight yourself in me, he says. 
He cares about what you desire. And he says to go after anything else is shovel and sand. Don't make it ultimate. Come after me. And that's where we see with Jesus' life that also longing. He longed to grow up. What did he do? Well, he drew near to God. Longing draws near to God. And we see, for time's sake, we just get the highlights of this. And that is, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, once again, being obedient. And when he was 12 years old, so we have no idea what he did from age uh, 8 days to 12 years old, except he grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom. But now he's 12, and they went up according to the custom, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went ahead a day's journey, that's about 20 miles, But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, anybody who's a parent knows three days without your child would be excruciating. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at the understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mom said this, son... Why have you treated us like this? Now, this passage makes no comment on how they could kind of overlook their son for a 20-mile journey kind of thing. There's no indication that this is like a bad parenting moment. They just don't make that comment. So for whatever reason, that this is okay. Where we are right now is verse 48. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And here's what Jesus says. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? As a 12-year-old, he understood this. His father was the God of the universe. And when he sat among those teachers and he listened and he asked questions, the goal of that was not just to have information. It was to draw nearer to his father. Because what this says is, didn't you know I would be about, not just in my father's house, the word house is not actually there, it's I would be about my father's business. It's attributing that this is the place where I would dwell with God. His desire was to draw near to the heart of God. And that is what he did. Now, as we finish... What's your takeaway? If your takeaway is, with my desires, I need to wait patiently. I need to worship. With my desires, I need to be obedient. And with my desires, I need to draw near to God. If it is, now, go do it and be a better person, then we've missed it. Don't forget what this entire passage was about. The entire passage was about a Savior who came and did everything that we couldn't do. When you are told to wait and wait patiently, you can do that because our Savior came on time. He came when He was supposed to come. He fulfilled every promise. And He will come again. He's always kept His word and He always will. When you're called to worship, 
Jesus came to show that he was worthy of worship. He died in your place. He rose from the dead. And there's a picture of the end of all things in the book of Revelation when we will sit at the throne and praise our almighty God because the lamb was worthy. Jesus was worthy. It's an invitation into a relationship with him, not just a command to obey. When we are called to obey, we look to the Savior who obeyed when we could not so we could have his righteousness and be accepted fully into his presence. And when he says that we can come to him and draw near to him, we can only do that because Jesus took on death, undeserving of its pain. He was rejected by the Father on the cross so we could draw near And although deserving rejection, we get acceptance. And we are made children by faith alone. Jesus paved the path so that every one of these commands are just an invitation. An invitation to go after him and to have a wonderful relationship that he promises will satisfy you forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that all of our desires and longings are fulfilled in you. And I ask, O God, that you would help us to make our longings healthy. We would place ourselves in the places. We would make the patterns of our life in such a way that our desires are crafted to look more like your desires. Father, I pray that we would not short-circuit you satisfying us by disobeying by making certain things that we should just enjoy by making them ultimate. Father, I pray that you would help us to pursue you with our longings, to wait and to worship, to obey, and that in this moment we would find you as our satisfaction. So God, meet us now in this time in Jesus' name.